Welcome to Diverse, a Society of Women Engineers podcast. SWE gives women engineers a unique place and voice within the engineering community. On Diverse, we highlight the incredible thought leaders and personalities in our community and discover who they are at home, at work, and in between. You can find all of our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and iHeartRadio. Hi, I'm your host, Sam East, and welcome to Diverse, a sweet podcast. Please remember to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at SWE Diverse Podcast. On today's episode of Diverse, I'm joined by Star Gin. Star is the Advanced Air Mobility Lead Strategist at NASA. In this role, she's responsible for maintaining a strategic view of the larger AAM ecosystem-wide movement to include advances in industry aircraft, airspace, and infrastructure investment and capability. Star, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Hi, thanks very much for having me on the podcast, Sam. Well, we want to jump right into the 2023 AIAA Aviation Forum that's taking place this June. For those who may not know about this, can you tell us about the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and about the forum taking place this summer? Sure. When I was just starting out in my career, I gave one of my first presentations in a public forum with a bunch of very smart technical people who'd been doing engineering and aerospace for most of their careers. So for a young engineer, it's a little intimidating, Mm -hmm. but it's just really incredible opportunity for technical exchange and also networking and finding new companies to work with, new collaborations on other technologies. Mm -hmm. And for those of us who don't really know a lot about the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, can you give people a good idea of what the organization is like? So it's an organization where you actually can find positions to hold in the organization. So for instance, they have different committees. I've been on the Flight Test Technical Committee for about 15 years. And just after being a member, I decided to be the technical lead for it. So I led that flight test technical committee. You can join multiple committees and contribute to what you'd like to bring to the AIAA events. You try to help bring in conference papers and strategize about, you know, what are some of the key new topics that maybe we should create new technical committees around. And then you can even move your way up in the an AIAA as far as, you know, being kind of leading and guiding multiple committees, or you could be on awards committees. So there's just, there's a lot to be involved with. You could make it a full-time job, but at most, it's all voluntary. Most everybody is at, you know, a full-time technical job and they spend some of their spare time helping AIAA. Mm. So for someone who, you know, you mentioned when you were newer to the industry, maybe feeling a little overwhelmed by the idea of joining something like this, would you say this is a good first step for people who are just breaking through in their career path? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody always needs a mentor. And so there's you know a lot of senior level subject matter experts in so many different fields. And, and so if you're a new engineer, engineering is a very broad field. There's a lot of different applications. And so being there, you can kind of get a flavor for what are all the different areas of research? It might 
give you opportunities to meet people in other companies. And maybe you realize, well, I'm really passionate about you know, doing hypersonics, but right now I'm working on large transport aircraft and it's a place to kind of like a kid in a candy store, I guess, mm-hmm. when you're there just to see what all the research is out there, where you'd really like to focus your energy. And when you, you know, were in that position as a kind of fresh faced new engineer, just breaking through, what was it about this industry in particular that piqued your interest? You know, working at NASA, the first A of NASA is aeronautics. Most people, when you tell them you work at NASA, they think you're working on the space side, which is where the majority of the budget goes. But (laughs) I've always been really excited about aviation and what how we use aviation for both defense and for civil commercial use. That's something that I can see affecting my life from the civil in the civil aerospace side. So, you know, if you want a cheaper seat on a large transport airplane, there was decades of research that NASA did to figure out how to make a large aircraft more fuel efficient, which helps dollar amounts come down. Might talk about it later, but now there's this new advanced air mobility where there's opportunities for people to be able to fly on smaller aircraft at affordable prices, which is not the case right now. So just, you know, helping people save time and money is was pretty inspiring of how I could do that on the technology side. Mm-hmm. And some of those topics there will be covered in the forum coming up in June, sustainability being one of them. Can you dive into some of these topics with us? Yes. So this upcoming AIAA Aviation Forum, that's going to be in June in San Diego, each forum has a theme. The particular, this theme for this year is taking revolutionary leaps toward a new age of aviation. I have the opportunity this year to work on, work with AIAA and planning the, the entire event and all the topics is just another example of positions you could hold within AIAA. So help them get presenters and panel members and keynote speeches. But what the theme really means is revolutionary leaps. So we talk about several stages that aviation has gone through. The first stage of aviation, Wilbur Wright flies the first airplane, and we realize human flight's possible. And we developed you know, aviation at that stage into a safe, viable transportation industry. And then that was propeller-driven airplanes. Then the next stage was when the jet engine was developed, and that allowed us to fly further distances and carry more people. And again, another path of improving safety. And that became a common air travel that was accessible for everybody at that stage. So now we're entering in the next age of aviation that separates power from propulsion with specialized material and modern avionics and software. And together with these multiple integrated new technologies, we have this opportunity to have a unique mission-specific aircraft so that people can connect with and into you know region to region or city to city using something like an air taxi. It will also help with the cargo industry. We all enjoy getting our packages from Amazon by truck now. Mm-hmm. But some of the movement of 
packages to those large distribution centers can be done with cargo airplanes that are electrified and more autonomous. So a lot of the cost that goes into aircraft is is the cost of the pilot. So the more you can remove the pilot and the pilot training because the airplanes are so safe and smarter, you bring down the you know the cost of air travel. For air taxis, these will be piloted to begin with for sure, but it's an opportunity for people to get out of traffic, get to a large airport, and we're hoping that would be at a cost point like an Uber Black, like a, a taxi. Okay, so let's talk about the taxi because that is something at this stage seems like something for the average person would be hard to wrap their head around. How imminent is that? Is that something that we'll see in our lifetime? Absolutely. Wow. Uh, we have the, so it's definitely with the new technologies, there is new uh, policies that have to be put in place and standards in the Federal Aviation Administration. So those are, that's the government that certifies aircraft. So right now we have a couple leading companies in the United States who are hoping to have a type certification by 2024 and get their operational approval to carry passengers in 25. There'll be a small number of those vehicles and you know a few cities where they try to start those operations, but these companies are also in parallel building uh, manufacturing facilities and combining their manufacturing with the automotive industry. So they're hoping that they can show a manufacturing certification path to produce more aircraft than can be done today with a lot of touch labor and moving towards the robotic automobile type of manufacturing. And that gets approved, then you'll start to see, you know, hundreds and the thousands of these aircraft and moving to more places around the United States and around the world. So there's just as many companies internationally trying to do this as in the U.S. And so it would be as accessible as, as you mentioned, Uber Black there as downloading the app, putting in your location, and then the taxi would come would come to your location. So the way they would begin is to have probably more scheduled operations, okay, okay. specific current infrastructure, but you would have an app that would have a multimodal connectivity. So you could get an Uber taxi, pick you up at your house, take you to a small airport, not a large airport, which most people don't realize how many unused small airports we have in the United States. And the timing would be such that your air taxi would be ready to load with up to four passengers and there's one pilot and take you, you know, a typical route, you know, could be anywhere from, you know, 15 to 50 trying to get, say, to a, a major airport. Mm-hmm. Sustainability is also one of the topics that will be covered at the forum. New developments like the taxi or, or cargo, is that, are they working in congruence there? Is there a plan to make these new technologies and services sustainable? Correct. So sustainability really is an, you need to focus on an end-to-end product to make sure that you have something that that's green and recyclable. So mm. even the electric cars today, you know, most of the people that charge their electric cars, the power that that's being generated from usually is large coal plants, which still pollute the air. 
But if we can move to more natural energy sources, sources like windmills and solar panels, and people are talking about hydrogen plants, then there's obviously nuclear plants make a lot of energy that is cleaner than a coal plant, but also their manufacturing facilities. So everything it takes to manufacture, how do you make that process more green as well? For sustainability for these aircraft, these companies, besides electrifying their aircraft and looking for greener, less emission sources of charging them, they're also considering the manufacturing process that also creates emissions and how can they make that more green. Mm. And another topic that's going to be covered at the forum, hypersonics and supersonics. And I won't lie to you, I don't know a whole lot about this. So we're going to lean on your expertise on that. What does that entail? So for the supersonics part, we're trying to figure out how to get back to civil transport at supersonic speeds. And Mm. the limitation for it right now is the sonic booms that supersonic aircraft make are very disruptive. And so there's a rule that aircraft cannot go supersonic over land. Hmm. Now, if you could reduce the size of that boom and make it tolerable for society, Mm -hmm. then you could save a lot of fuel and have a very good business case for supersonic transport for all of us. Right now, if you take off from an airport, you have to fly supersonic over the water and then you have to dart back in over land at subsonic speeds. So that's one of the big research areas for supersonics. And for hypersonics, there's a mix between military applications and, you know, possible civil use applications, which is really far out there. Not sure we'll see that in our lifetime. But there is an idea that if you go up even higher and faster, you can transport people. This sounds like a jam-packed itinerary for the forum. For those who are hearing this, it's piqued their interest. They want to check it out. Is there a place that they can get more information on it? Right. Just www.aiaa.org and look for events and you should find the aviation form. Awesome. I'm sure a lot of people are gearing up to check out the forum this June. Well, we always go back to the beginning on the Diverse Podcast. So before you became the advanced Air Mobility National Campaign Lead at NASA, which is just mind-blowing <laughs> as an incredible responsibility and career path that you've worked up to. But how did you even choose a career path in engineering? What was the origin story there? Yeah, there's a lot of people I meet that work at NASA that what inspired them is to you know see space shuttles launch and mm-hmm. walk on the moon and that sort of thing. For me, it was an kind of an accident that I, I came into NASA. And it really stems around just my competitive nature, I guess. When I was in high school there, I specifically work at NASA Armstrong Flight Research Center that's located on Edwards Air Force Base in the Antelope Valley. So Palmdale, Lancaster in California area. And I was going to high school in that area and they were picking one student from 10 different high schools to do a six-week internship as an engineer at NASA. And I filled out the application. I, In my mind, I number one, I really didn't know what an engineer was. I grew up in a family with, that nobody had gone to 
college. And so I didn't have a lot of mentorship at home of career paths. But I thought, well, I'm going to fill this out and see if I can beat my classmates. And sure enough, they picked me out of my particular high school. And then I'm thinking, wow, I didn't even know there was a NASA near me. And so I get out here to Edwards Air Force Base, and it was like stepping into the movie Top Gun or if anybody's seen the right stuff, that's an incredible movie to watch. But it was just amazing to see one-of-a-kind aircraft that pretty much nobody really knows is flying around, developing and demonstrating new technologies that one day we'll see in future aircraft. And it was just incredible. And the, the all the pilots that fly these airplanes, you know, they take a lot of risk in flying something that's never been flown before. And it's kind of a you break stuff and you learn stuff and you break stuff and you learn stuff. And obviously we want to keep the pilot safe, but sometimes there's things that just aren't predictable. And on the military side in those development eight decades, we did lose quite a few pilots and all the streets out here at Edwards is named after um, pilots that we've lost. But that was more in the era of, you know, trying to figure out how to just go supersonic and, you know, getting to the space race and that sort of thing. And things are very safe now. We haven't lost any pilots. But it's just so exciting. And I thought, so I'm 17 years old and I decided this is what I want to be when I grow up. I guess I'm going to be an engineer. And I learned a little bit about what that was while I was out here. And I'm going to go to college and I ended up studying mechanical engineering for my bachelor's and then went on to a master's degree in aeroelasticity. Wow. Which is when an airplane can vibrate itself apart. Wow. So at 17 years old, because that's a pretty big decision to make at such a young age, what did the landscape look like for you in the aerospace industry? Were there a lot of women that you were surrounded with or were you one of few at the time? Yes, definitely one of few, for sure. Actually, in, in all of my classes in college, I was the one token girl in each of the classes. Mm -hmm. And so it was to me, it, it was easy. I grew up in a family with a lot of brothers, so I was not intimidated by my men and, you know, just as competitive in my spirit with them as well. And so, I mean, there definitely was an aspect of you kind of have, I felt like you have to prove yourself. You had to work a little bit harder to prove yourself in that kind of environment for people to recognize your capabilities and give you opportunities to move up. And sure enough, I, you know, I definitely worked hard and I juggled a lot of projects and, and I was able to definitely move up at a, I think, a, you know, a very rapid pace. So I don't think, you know, maybe I don't think that held me back. But again, it's really, it's definitely a personality trait that you have to be very comfortable in all male environments and not, you know, not be worried about, you know, speaking up and speaking your mind and even, you know, some, you're not always right when you have ideas, but that's okay. But yeah, it, it's been a great journey. I still say there's a very small percentage of women that work in engineering. It hasn't changed I, too much of a percent, I think, from when the time I started. And, you know, I have some ideas around how you could fix that at a much younger age when girls are growing up. What would that entail, do you think, just giving more opportunities like the one that you had at 17, even younger, to see if that's an interest for young women? 
I think it really needs to start at adolescence. I think we have a society that, you know, buckets girls as pink and boys as blue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, girls get dolls and boys get Legos. And I grew up with brothers. So, you know, I didn't play with dolls. I played with the things my brothers played with. I think that, you know, had a lot of influence and, you know, just understanding, you know, how boys think and being, you know, comfortable around how they can be a little bit more competitive in nature and not find that standoffish. I mean, personally, when I was pregnant and I knew I was having a girl, I had a no pink baby shower. And <laughs> and so I kind of set that precedence and, you know, at that early of a stage. And, you know, my daughter's, you know, turned out to be, you know, quite a tomboy like I was and uh, doing great. But I just really, I really think we need to figure out how to get girls doing more like mechanically inclined hands-on things for with science at a much younger age. Mm-hmm. Along the way, I mean, it's obvious that you had a lot of grit and determination. That's that's very, very apparent. But were there any mentors along the way as you were growing in your career, in your industry, who helped you along? There, I mean, I had, I definitely had male mentors. I mean, I didn't have particularly like a female mentor to help me with maybe I didn't feel like I struggled with you know finding my voice from a female perspective but I did have a lot of great uh, male mentors that helped you know kind of curve well let's see I'm a very you know excitable person I love to share my ideas and probably just you know, working on my demeanor and the way to negotiate ideas and try to, you know, find new opportunities for research. I had some help with mentorship there. Well, you know what? That's also important too, right? If you're saying that, especially at the time when you were growing in your career, there weren't so many women around you. So it's wonderful to hear that there were also male figures in your career path who were were empowering you to keep excelling in your career as well. We need those figures as well. Absolutely. Yep. And so to those young women who are considering a career in the aerospace industry, just like you back when you were 17, how can they best prepare themselves right now? I always tell the interns that we have here, try to get your foot in the door to any particular companies so that you can understand, you know, what engineering is really like, make sure you're actually going into the right field of interest and get various experiences, work in various branches at a particular company so you can see what different kinds of engineers do or the applications that they work on. And, you know, it's worth getting some time to start a project and be able to see it to the end. And a lot of times just summer internships aren't really enough to see the life cycle of a project. So I, myself, I took off two semesters of college so that I could spend a whole year interning, have an opportunity to design, test, and and fly the technology that I was working on. They gave me a really good appreciation for working with a large team and project managers and chief engineers and all these different disciplines. You have to understand how to work with in this team environment. And although, you know, that set me back an extra year of finishing my bachelor's, people who would just go through all the way to their bachelor's probably will take a year just to find a job anyway. So showing your work ethic 
I think goes a long way in getting your foot in the door versus somebody, you know, looking at resumes and trying to see who's got the highest GPA. Because at the end of the day, I don't personally think it's really all about the highest GPA. It's how you work and interact with people and problem solve. And to show your abilities to do that in the workplace is should be a shoe in to get a job. Mm, I love that because I think there is a lot of pressure on young students in particular to hurry up and get that degree before you get out into the field. So I think you might have given someone a sigh of relief there knowing that it all comes together in the end and that work experience, even if you have to take some time away from it, is crucial, is really important to your growth. Absolutely. And before we let you go here, Star, what has been the biggest lesson that you have learned since you started working in the engineering field? My biggest lesson probably be don't burn any bridges. So mm. <laughs> you never know who you're working with, even as coworkers, who will end up being, you know, just say like your supervisor or somebody that's holding on to the procurement you need for the next idea you have. Make sure you have very nice, genuine relationships with everybody that you work with. And it will always come back to help you in your future. Oh, I love that. That is a good one that applies to so many different areas of life. Right. Well, thank you so much, Star, for joining us today on the Diverse Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Sam East. For all of us at SWE, thank you for listening. Please like and share our podcast on SWE.org, SoundCloud, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Diverse. Please don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with your social network. You can keep up to date with our podcast on Instagram at SWE Diverse Podcast and on our blog, altogether at altogether.swe.org. <laughs>